Good morning. You guys look great. What a beautiful November day we have. We're in a series uh, called Clear Truth for a Confused World. Uh, and so if you came this morning and, uh, and you're shocked by some of the things I say, uh, you should have expected it. Uh, and, and I'm not looking for shock value. I'm just looking to preach what the Bible actually says. See, around here, we decided um, from the beginning, uh, but even more adamantly about two years ago, not that we changed, but culture changed around us. And we all saw that. And as a team, we just looked and said, uh, man, this world looks like it's headed towards some madness. And in the midst of the madness, what we need is the truth and the clarity of Scripture. And so that's the lane that we decided to, to go down um, and, and we've been walking down that, and it's getting more and more fun uh, as we just get more and more clear. Not that we've ever been confused, but more and more clear or more and more bold about this is what God's Word says. And you and I have two choices. Choice one is to believe God's Word is best. Choice two is to think you're smarter than God. Those are the only two choices. And so what we've decided around here is God made us, he designed us, he has a plan, and his plan is always for our good and his glory. And so as we follow his plan, it leads to those two things. And so what we've been doing is walking through God's order of creation. Two weeks ago, we started it off, we talked about men. Yesterday, by the way, we had our men's event, we had 160 guys in the room. It was an awesome morning, and... Yeah, thank you guys for, for getting there. And ladies, the women's event, by the way, is next Saturday. You can sign up online on the website for that. And um, since the ladies get an extra week of promo- promotion, girls, you have to get to 200 to beat us, okay? Otherwise, the guys win. So sign up, get there. Even if this is your first week, what a great way for you to, to get to know us a little bit more and get more connected. And so that's what we did two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about what is it to, to be a godly woman. Uh, woman, and today we're going to bring it together, and we're going to talk about marriage, marriage, and uh, and the scriptures talk about marriage a lot, and so if the scriptures think they were imp- it was important enough topic to to talk about it, then then we should think it's an important enough topic. And here's my aim this morning. Okay, I've got um, four. Number one, uh, it's to strengthen the resolve of good biblical marriages that are present in this room. Number two, it is to help correct any Christian marriages that are misaligned. Number three, it is to offer insight to the single who will be married someday what it is that you are entering into and how to get ready for it. And then number four, it is for all of us uh, that whether we never want to be married, we're not going to be married, whatever it might be, uh, for all of us, it is to see how marriage is a beautiful picture of the gospel and that actually by understanding marriage better, it gives us a glimpse into understanding the gospel better. And so even if you don't ever want to get married, understand what this relationship is because it'll help you understand how much Jesus loves you, how much God loves you. And so that's my fourth aim this morning. Now I will say, and it is obvious to all of us, when it comes to marriage, the world is very, very confused. Let me start off with a confused distortion that the world has. Marriage is about my personal satisfaction, pursuits, and happiness. In other words, we take the very self-centered message of our culture and then just want to apply that into the realm of marriage. And so we'll hear things like, yeah, I'm getting married to this person, but don't try and change me. 
Or I'm getting married and I'm going to do my thing and you do your thing. And then we'll just each do our own thing on our own, but we'll call it marriage. Here's the clear truth of scripture. I'll show it to you this morning. Marriage is about a mutually beneficial and sanctifying partnership formed for human goodness and God's glory. And that's how God created this idea of marriage. And God loves marriage. It's the first institution, uh, really, that he creates. And then we see marriage all throughout the scriptures, and, uh, and there's instructions on it. And what I want to do today is kind of go back to the beginning so we can understand uh, why marriage was created, how marriage was formed, uh, and then what the beautiful result of marriage is. And we see it all in Genesis chapter 2. Let's talk about the confused world for a second. There's a marriage expert out there. Her name is Miley Cyrus. And this is her thoughts. What I preach is, notice how she uses the word preach. What I preach is people fall in love with people, not gender, not looks, not whatever. What I'm in love with exists on almost a spiritual level. It has nothing to do with sexuality. Relationships and partnerships in a new generation, I don't think they have so much to do with sexuality or gender. Sex is actually a small part, and gender is a very small, almost irrelevant part of relationships. I would try to explain what she said, but I really have no clue what she said. I read through this over, and I'm like, what point is she making other than I think anything goes? Anything goes. Seven years ago, eight years ago, whenever it was when the landmark case happened in our country, um, changing the definition of marriage, Judge Roberts, uh, who created a dissenting opinion, said the real tragedy today is, and I don't necessarily agree with him in this statement, but the real tragedy today is we have a culture now that thinks it can define words that have had stated meaning for thousands of years. And that was part of the tragedy for certain And as Christians, marriage is not a political issue, it is not a governmental issue, it is not a societal issue, it is a biblical issue that has implications in those arenas. Marriage is God's, and the world does not get to taint it, distort it, and destroy it. God created marriage for your good and his glory. And when we operate in a marriage the way that God laid it out, it truly results in those two things, our good and his glory. A marriage is tough. Anyone who's been in it longer than a week knows that. In fact, actually, it only took Lindsay and I about 12 hours, right, to get to tough. We joke all the time. The worst week of our marriage was our honeymoon. We went to Ireland The trip there, not great. Then I had to try to figure out how to start the car. Couldn't even figure that out. Then we drove to our Airbnb in Dublin, looked at it, and Lindsay looks at me and says, we are not staying here. I learned quickly, and I said, yes, dear, we are not. And so we literally paid for a week of an Airbnb and didn't stay in it one night. So then we just drove the countryside of Ireland and stayed in different places, and it was a tough week. We also got pregnant with our first child that week, right? I'm not kidding, all right? 
So people are like, oh man, we waited three months. I was like, why, why are you moving so slow? Okay, gosh, what the heck? I think there's this idea in the world that marriage starts off awesome and then it just gets worse and worse until you quit and go do something else. In a Christian marriage, the beauty of it is it can start somewhere, good or bad, and you operate in God's way, it gets better and better and better and better. And that's the message of the scriptures, and that's the message that I want us to try to grab a hold of this morning. And so the first way we're going to do it, again, we're just going to go back to Genesis chapter 2 because we like to look at the beginnings of things and, uh, and because we still believe in Genesis and we believe that it is a foundation for how the world is supposed to operate. And so in Genesis chapter 2, there's this little situation going on. Adam has been formed already by God and Adam has already been given the instruction to, um, uh, to, to, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And he's been given a mission and men are to be on mission. That's what uh, God created us to do, to be conquering something, to be advancing something, to be going after something. And so Adam is already doing this and Adam as Adam is uh, doing the work that God has called him to do, he's alone in doing it. And so in Genesis chapter 2, we actually see the very first problem that is presented in the Bible. And this is very important. The first problem presented in the Bible is not sin. It's not. It's that man was alone. Man was alone. And God looks down and he says, that's, that's not good. That man should be alone. Uh, in fact, the scriptures say it this way in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And this word helper is an important word here in understanding what the, uh, what the scriptures mean for marriage. But the first problem, again, presented in the Bible was man's aloneness. And uh, by the way, sometimes the, the world and even the church, the confused church, tries to solve this man aloneness problem by saying, well, if you just stop sinning and pursue God more, then the aloneness issue will go away. Adam lived in a perfect garden, in a perfect relationship with God, and there was still a problem because there are certain issues or problems that don't need the, um, the ethereal, hear me out, the ethereal spiritual solution, but God said, no, you need a human being to partner with. In fact, many of the issues that sometimes the church tries to give veiled solutions over, God's solution, he said, I already gave you a solution for that. Man, if you're feeling alone, get married. Now, be wise in how you do that. But that was the solution. And so the first solution uh, to the first problem was marriage. Get that, marriage was the first solution to the first problem. And so here we have uh, uh, Adam. He's out there. He's working. God says, it's not good that man should be alone. And so then it's interesting what the scriptures say next because they almost seem to be a diversion from what God had just said. But I think the scriptures are intentional here because they're going to show what Adam was doing by himself to reiterate the point of why Eve or the woman was so necessary. Now, out of the ground of the Lord, God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. At first, you might be reading this and go, what does this have to do with man being alone? 
Well, we have, to, we have to see. He says, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The first point here is what? That Adam was busy at work in the midst of uh, his, his aloneness. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And all of these were told earlier in the scripture. They were made male and female, and God had created partnerships for them already. And then he uses the same word as he's looking to the male and the female uh, animals. He uses the same word. He says, but for Adam, there is not found a helper fit for him. In other words, God's looking down. He goes, okay, you see how the, the, the animals all have their helper? They all have their male and female. Adam, you don't have that yet. You don't have that yet. And so the dog can be your best friend. That's fine. And the horse can help you plow and all of this. And the cat can annoy you to all end. Amen. But you need something more than that. You need something more than that. You need a helper. You need a partner. You need a companion. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, and these next lines, they actually are supposed to read like poetry. It's not just mechanical. It's mechanical. It's, it's, it's romantic. It's, uh, there's some excitement building in Adam's voice. This is at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Marriage. The first marriage. We're about to see the other two parts of it. But we see in here something that is very important, and that is the aim or the goal or the point of marriage, marriage is a partnership to advance the kingdom of God together. Marriage is a partnership to subdue the earth together. And yes, it involves these different elements. It involves the friendship element. Uh, It involves the partnership, the more practical elements of partnership. It involves um, romance. And we see that in the poetry and the way Adam talks. And so it takes all of those different elements. But the aim and the goal of marriage is that you have now a companion that you are partnered together with for the sake of the gospel. This is a complete contrast to the world's perspective of, no, it's just something that I exist exist in, and I do what I want, and you do what you want. No, marriage is us partnered together. That's why God created it. He was solving a companionship issue. I say this at every wedding uh, when, I, when I'm officiating the wedding, and I, I look at the guy, and I look at the girl, and I say, hey, behold your best friend now for life. Behold your companion now for life, your partner for life. Now, this then is the, the aim of marriage, right? And, uh, and, and this is the, the point of it. So now that we understand the aim and the point of Christian marriage, biblical marriage, then we ask the question, well, how does this uh, actually go about getting formed? And, and God, he's so good to us. He just lays it out in the very next verse. Um, actually, by the way, before I step into that, um, two weeks ago, I talked about a married couple. It's the first married couple in the New Testament, a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And, and what's interesting about Ananias and Sapphira, the first married couple in the New Testament, is that they're like an anti-picture of Christian marriage. 
See, in Acts chapter 5, verse 9, if you don't know the story real quick, Ananias and Sapphira, they had some wealth, and everybody right then in the first church, they were, um, they were just like God was moving, and people were selling things and then giving the money, uh, laying it at the apostles' feet for the good of the church. And Ananias and Sapphira saw somebody else doing it, and they're like, hey, let's hop into. And so they sold something, and they bring the money to the church, um, but when they lay it out, they go, hey, how much did you get for it? And they go, oh, it was uh, 100, but it was actually 200. I'm making up the numbers. And then they kept the other 100 for themselves, but they fronted like they had given all of it. And then in Acts 5, 9, it teaches us something really important. It says they agreed together to do this. Here's the question that the very first married couple of the New Testament is teaching us. What kind of agreement and partnership are you and your spouse going to have? Is it going to be an agreement and a partnership that advances God's righteousness and goodness? Or is it going to be an agreement and a partnership that advances your own? Or the world's. Right from the beginning, we're told what marriage, how it goes wrong. It's when you agree together, right, to not do it God's way. Marriage is supposed to be about us partnering together to do it his way. So, so what is the, uh, for lack of a better term, what is the vehicle then that God wanted to hold this marriage uh, idea into? Well, marriage is actually the answer. It is the vehicle. So let's understand what marriage is. So God at this point, let's bring them together. And then he tells us in verse 24 of the text, okay, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so what God is doing here is he's saying, this is the vehicle on how the partnership is going to travel. This is the, the entity, marriage, that, uh, that is going to protect the partnership or the relationship. Now, um, theologians then derive this term that I'm going to use that is then used throughout the rest of the scriptures to define what is going on here or describe better what is going on here in verse 24. And the word that is used is covenant. That's why you hear the phrase, a marriage covenant. And what's going on here uh, is that we're being taught and told that this, this covenant relationship, okay, uh, and, and what is a covenant? A covenant is something where there is on one hand kind of the, the, the relational side of it, the I love this person, uh, I like this person, I enjoy this person, and then on the other side, there is this kind of legal binding uh, and contractional agreement, and it's like those two things coming together. And what we, uh, where marriage gets distorted is on one hand, people say, oh no, marriage is just the one on the left. It's it, uh, my left here. Uh, it, it's just the idea of I love you, I like you. They did a survey, 53% of millennials think that the phrase till death do us, part, do us part should be removed from all vows, right? Take it out. And, and then you'll hear this phrase now in marriages, what? Till love leaves, Right? So lovely. We got a confused world. Okay? What, what do they want? They don't want marriage to be a covenant. They want marriage just to be about the feeling or the emotional side. Okay? Now, we could reverse to the other side and say, well, I'm legally bound and contractually obligated, right? But what do we know about con uh, contracts and legally binding something? Like, even in the midst of that, if one partner wants to ruin the other partner, it, they'll figure out a way to do it. Right, even in a legal idea. So what was marriage supposed to be? It was supposed to be this new thing that kind of combines all of these ideas of relationships and forms us into it, this covenant relationship. That's why, by the way, that Christians, there's a few doctrines that have emerged out of this idea. 
Like, I remember being a youth pastor, and um, uh, kids would come up to me, and they're like, where does the Bible say you can't have sex until marriage? Right? Like, show me the verse. I said, well, that verse is not in there. I said, what's in there is the idea of the covenant relationship. And then you take that and you add all of the other verses and the other picture of uh, sexuality in the scriptures, and that's where Christians arrive on this idea that sex is to be confined in marriage. And we live in a confused world right now that, that thinks that, I mean, the sexual boundaries, there shouldn't be any sexual boundaries, right? Do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, wherever you want, whatever you want. And the scriptures teach you, no, this happens in the, in the, in the agreement, the covenant agreement. And, and, and the words that we draw that idea from are right here. That the man shall leave his father and mother. And for, in other words, in order for this covenant to begin, it starts with a departing. And by the way, one of the reasons that marriages, even Christian marriages sometimes don't work, is because uh, either one or both aren't willing to properly depart. They're not willing to, to properly depart their individualism. Okay, They're not willing to properly depart maybe the upbringing that they had or the ties that they have to form something new. They're not willing to depart their own um, selfish or sinful uh, or worldly perspective on what marriage is. Marriage starts with a departure in, in the scriptures. And it's saying, hey, we're departing this and we're entering into something new. And God, and there's no other like idea of this anywhere else other than biblical marriage. And when the two of you depart and you enter into this covenant, you're going to become one. And you're going to become one in everything. Like one being one. And, and that's where the idea, by the way, of the doctrine of, uh, of Christian sexuality comes out of. That's where the idea of when people say, well, we're married in our heart. We're married in our heart. No, oneness is about full and complete oneness. And so if you want to be married in your heart, right, but you want to avoid the legal or contractual side of marriage, you're not married. You're not biblically married. Why? Because that's not full oneness. What you're trying to do in there is you're trying to hold off elements of oneness. You're trying to say, I want to hold on to my, this legal standing or this financial standing or whatever else. I don't want to bring it into marriage. And, 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 and biblical marriage is oneness, fullness, wholeness. No holding back. This is the covenant that it sits in. And the beauty of the covenant is this, that when both people enter into the covenant, they're saying this, that, that I am committed to loving you. I'm con- committed to this kind of love, and I'm committed to it till death do us part. Uh, I- I'm committed to it for the fullness of time. And so then there's safety in that. There's safety in that commitment. Other um, ideas, by the way, this is where the, the idea of, of, of divorce for Christians and the doctrine on that, that divorce is always this absolute last resort for the Christian, right? Because I want to work through this because I've made this covenant. Now, by the way, I know when I'm bringing this stuff up um, that, that it's very easy because of the world we live in, because of the lives we've lived, because of all of this, um, to, to begin to maybe feel something inside of us. All right, and there, there could be two things. One, it could be an anger. Okay, if you're mad at me, don't be mad at me. Be, you can be mad at me, actually. I don't really care. But um, look at the scriptures because God wants what is best. The other thing is this. If, if, if shame is coming over you, okay, I want to I stop and say this for a second. Okay, my aim is not to shame anyone. My aim is to instruct what the scriptures say is best. And my, my, my heart is to remind you of God's incredible grace to step into repentance if there has been sin or there is currently sin right now 
and to, to, to step into holiness as Jesus instructed, go and sin no more, okay? Go and cohabitate no more. Go and engage in sex outside of marriage no more. But then walk in the freedom that when you repent, God has forgiven you and you're free. And everyone's invited to experience redemption, so keep coming back. And we're going to keep walking with you and we're going to love you. Because we do not define people around here by their sin. We define them by who God is changing them into being, okay? And so we have to walk in that. But that doesn't mean we don't look at what the truth of Scripture says, okay? And so in this, then, this covenant relationship was the way that God wanted to hold this whole thing together. And when you step into the marriage, then, this oneness, oneness is hard, and oneness, uh, it chips away at you, and, uh, and God actually uses marriage to sanctify us and to make us more like his son Jesus, okay? Um, but marriage, uh, in marriage, then, God said, well, let me give you some guidelines on how to operate in marriage. And so later, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesians. And he goes, okay, uh, and this is all over the scriptures. It's in like six or seven different places. And what Paul does, he says, okay, we all know the foundation of marriage, the covenant, uh, that the two are becoming one in every way. And, uh, but Paul says, here are some instructions on, on how you can best live out the godly marriage. And we hit on some of this last week, and, uh, and I want to hit on some of it uh, today too, because now that we're specifically talking about marriage, these instructions are important. Now, right before the verse I'm going to read, the most famous verse, we see this line submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there Paul is talking about how Christians mutually submit to one another. Now, if there's two Christians in a marriage, there is this element of mutual submission one to another. I'm going to submit to you. You're going to submit to me. What? Out of reverence for Christ. And so certain things come up and you say, well, okay, out of reverence for Christ, I'm going to submit to that. And then out of reverence for Christ, you're going to submit to me. And there's this mutual desire to serve and love and build up the other person. But then in the, specifically in the context of marriage, Paul says, well, let me tell you how, uh, how in marriage then, like how to break the tie. Let me tell you how uh, in marriage where, where you get to a point and maybe there's some conflict, how to work that out how to agree together if we'll follow some of the previous language. And so then Paul goes a little bit deeper, right? He says, yes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But then in the context of marriage, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now listen, it does not say women submit to men. And where people have tried to use it to do that, that is a distortion. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband. And then Paul's like, well, let me tell you why. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Paul creates this metaphor. And, and here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, as Jesus is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of the wife. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying um, should be, could be, might be, will be, is is. Let me say it another way. Regardless if you want to acknowledge the reality of it or not, is. You can stand in the tree and think that gravity is not a thing. The moment you step off, it is. You can say that biblical headship is not a thing, but that doesn't mean it's not. It still is, right? And so, uh, and so Paul's kind of laying this out. He's like, this is what this means, right? Now, um, it's interesting because whenever you start opening up these conversations, it opens up a lot of conversations. 
And so my wife, um, who her and I have been kind of working through this over the last six months to a year, um, she wrote something on Facebook this, this week about um, biblical submission after last week's sermon on women. And she went through it. And then some lady, and this happens, right? Some lady hopped in and just went to town on her, Right? And, and here's, here's what she did. She propagated what are unfortunately lies that propagate through. And it is this, this incredible lie that um, uh, to talk about godly submission means that you are advocating for abuse. Okay? And that's what she accused Lindsay of. And it's tragic that, that obviously abuse is tragic. And no one anywhere who is godly is advocating for anything that ought to be abusive. And where the church has covered up abuse, like real abuse, that's disgusting and ungodly. And, 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 and people should deal with that, right? You deal with it as a church, deal with it according to the law, right, if there's abuse. But just because certain humans messed up something God designed doesn't mean that we throw out what God designed. Imagine the other scenario, because later on it's going to say men Lay down your, wife, your life for your wives, or for your wife, right? Lay, lay down your, your, your life. Well, imagine if, if men were like, you know what? There's some bad women out there, so I'm not going to serve my wife. There's some mean girls out there, so I'm not going to. Then what happens? In the marriage, then, it just becomes about fighting. I'm not going to do my role. You're not going to do your role, and we're just going to do this. And Paul says, hold on, I know marriage can get there, so, so let me lay some things out. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Paul makes a pretty compelling metaphor, doesn't he? He's like, here's the deal. You can disagree with this, but you also have to disagree with Jesus being in charge of the church. So choose carefully. His body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, look at the metaphor. It's beautiful. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's beautiful. It goes on. Now, in Christian marriage, when you start with, well, what was the point of this? Oh, it was that we would be partners together for the gospel. That was the point. If you have a different starting point, you're probably going to try to operate it differently. But if you go back to the beginning, you say, okay, what was the point of this? And for some of us, we might just have to be reminded again, what was the point of you getting married? Like the spiritual point. I know you had your point in the moment, and I don't care what the point was at the moment, five years ago, 10 years ago, three years ago, 30 years ago. Let's be reminded, what was the point? That we would partner together for the gospel. That was the point. Be, and he gives us two instructions. Fill and subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And those, that's how we then go partner for the, uh, for the gospel together. Okay, now, what's the safety of this? Well, it's a covenantal relationship, right, where we're departing and forming something new, and, uh, and there's proper understanding of headship and proper understanding of submission, and then there is also uh, uh, um, this, this service that's laying down your life uh, for, for the wife, and, and that the, the safety of that allows us then to thrive in what God created. And, and, and we also have to, by the way, think, isn't this interesting that in the very first story of the New Testament, okay, I do want to throw this out there, uh, the very first story of the New Testament, the married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, that they actually show an experience where um, the, 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 there was the exception to the rule that the wife shouldn't have actually submitted to her husband because she, he was asking her to lie to God. Isn't it interesting that the New Testament starts with that story? What is it showing? It is showing that, yes, this is not just a blanket statement, men, for you to do whatever you want. 
And if you think that's what it means, you're wrong. You're wrong. Okay. But there's a right way to understand it. And it's a beautiful way to understand it. Now, one of the um, ways that we properly understand this, this submission or this headship idea, uh, when you think about it, like the, 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 the husband is the head of his wife, right? Think about it from like a, uh, like a, like a leader perspective, something like that. And uh, I would say it is this, because what I'm not talking about this morning is who gets to make every decision and who gets to do that. There are lots of decisions in our household that Lindsay makes, okay? I don't get to decide what color the walls are painted, Okay, and I'm not trying to be petty. Like these are important things on the sense of like, how does our house function? How does it feel? How does it look? All of these kind of things. You know why I certainly defer to her in that? Because she's way better at it than me. And as a leader or a head, I would be a fool not to leverage the skills and the personality and the beauty and the talent of my wife and my partner. I'd be a fool to do that. And so what does this look like? It looks like saying, hey, we're partnered together here. We're working along together, right? But what's interesting is that when you operate, and and Lindsay and I can just speak of this from the experience of our lives over the last few months and years, uh, of like when you operate in this, the joy and the peace it begins to bring in the household. And some of you have experienced that. And and yes, I'll talk in a second how... um, what we need to em- employ in our lives to get there, okay? But this is kind of, this is, this is Paul's instruction. This is, the, and this is going back to Genesis 2, right? Uh, and this is the way it was supposed to be, this proper ordering of things. Now, I will say this. I want to take a couple of minutes here, and I want to talk about two things in the marriage that can disrupt the oneness the most. Two things in a marriage that can disrupt the oneness the most. Hope you're ready. Sex and money. Sex and money. Isn't it interesting that uh, two of the topics, by the way, that are talked about the most in the scriptures, right? Because these are, these are money first, most talked about topic, right? And then, and then if you actually begin to read the scriptures through, through sex and sexual sin, I mean, it's in there all the time. And these are the two things that, that the enemy Satan loves to use to destroy oneness in a marriage. And so I would not be doing my job this morning if I didn't work our way through these a little bit. Because Satan wants to use these two things that are supposed to be beautiful things. Beautiful, um, I will call them, uh, sex and money are supposed to be weapons of war against the enemy, but instead we use them as weapons of war against each other in marriage. Let me give you a confused distortion first. Confused distortion in the world today. My money is my money and your money is your money. Clear truth, our money is our money. Our money is our money. And what happens is because of our, uh, our, our natural bent for independence, because of, our, uh, because of the, what we have been fed and what we have been taught and all of these types of things, we try to enter into a marriage which is supposed to be about oneness but withhold this particular part of life. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits that you receive. I know I'm butchering it a little bit. It's up on the screen. You know it. It says, And your barns will be full. In other words, if you do what God says to do, if you do what God says to do, it will turn out good for you. And in in marriage, what happens is uh, the enemy comes in and he tries to break us up and he tries to create distrust between us in marriage or in money in marriage. And, uh, and the distrust might be, well, you don't prioritize like I prioritize, or you're a fool and don't know what you're doing, or you're reckless, or you're stingy, or you're this, or you're that. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. 
And a lot of times what happens is people will, um, by the way, when, when there are these like glaring omissions to the truth of how we're supposed to operate and we try to fix other things on top of it, those other things will never solve the deepest issue when there's a glaring mistake underneath. In other words, I'll have couples come to me that are um, living together in sin and they'll say, hey, we really want to fix our relationship. Then move out. Don't tell me you want to fix it while you're still engaged in what you want, you know you shouldn't do. Because you can fix all of these things out here, but you're missing the glaring, the glaring one. Now, in money, here's what happens, okay? Um, we have to look and say, okay, what does it look like to honor the Lord with our wealth? And by the way, if you are single, this is gold. You need to, you need to like say, okay, here, because when you're single, you can prepare for this. Okay, you can prepare for this. Here, here are the four things. I've taught a whole sermon on this. By the way, it's on our, our, our YouTube channel, God's um, Perspective on Money. And, and here, um, here, here's God's order for money in the scriptures. Number one, um, providing for your family's needs. That's number one. That's God's first priority. We know this because in 1 Timothy, he tells us, if you don't take care of the needs of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And where God would want all of us first is not to be worse than an unbeliever. I'm not talking about a momentary like, like need Okay, like, like for a short moment, okay, I'm talking about a lifetime or a consistent pattern of not providing the needs for your family. That's what God says first. Secondly, is tithing and generosity, that I'm going to take some of what comes in as a family, we're partnered together, and we're going to take what comes in, uh, the tithe, 10%, we're going to pour it back out for the kingdom of God. God's third priority is protection and saving so that you might be ready for um, a change, like if the economy goes crazy or inflation goes crazy or something like that, that you might be protected for a downturn. That's his third priority. Fourth priority, enjoyment. Live, have fun. And here's the beauty of a marriage when it is partnered together for the gospel is that uh, probably in your marriage, some of you are going to be really, one of you is going to be really good at one of them and the other one's going to be really bad at the other ones and vice versa because God brings us together. And, uh, uh, and so what might happen or what does happen oftentimes in marriage is you'll have one person and they're like, they're the spender, let's go, let's buy. And what they've done is they take enjoyment and they move it to the top almost to the detriment of being able to do the other three. Or what might happen is uh, maybe Mr. Excel or Mrs. Excel, either one, right? I'm talking about like Microsoft Excel, right? You got everything all lined up, whatever. And what, what you do is you say, okay, we got one done, we got two done, and we got three done. But you go so hardcore on number three that you never get to number four. You never enjoy it. And you have forgotten that your kids are only this age once, Right? And yeah, you're like, okay, but if we have to put X amount aside because uh, otherwise we won't, and, and there's this element of like, yeah, but they're only nine once. And so you can say, okay, so how do we work through this? This is what I would encourage every couple, every couple, right? And by the way, um, male headship, I would just say this. Um, if you think that male headship is that um, your wife has no influence or insight into how money is spent in your family, you're missing out on half of the equation. You are. Why can't you trust that God has brought her perspective into your marriage for a reason? That, that she might understand one of those four better than you do? Or are you so prideful that you think you understand all of it better than she could? Had, a proper leader would want to say, I want half of the equation involved in this conversation. 
In October of 2019, Lindsay and I sat down and we started working through this. And I can say we used a tool, uh, Ramsey Plus, and as a church, um, Lindsay and I got so excited about Ramsey Plus and the way we used it that we bought it for the whole church. Uh, and so anyone who's a part of Redemption, even if it's your first week here, uh, as long as we have your email, uh, everyone gets a, a free account. It's 120 bucks a year, um, but we, we paid like an annual fee for everyone in the church. Why? I mean, at the heart of it was Lindsay and I saw what it did in our marriage. To, to work through this, this, these concepts and these principles, to challenge each other in them, to sit down as a couple and work our way through this. Why? Because we want to partner together for the gospel. And when we're partnered together for the gospel, when we view marriage as that, then money is one of the tools that God has given us. And so we look and we go, okay, let's take care of our needs first, needs not wants. Okay, secondly, we're going to put in our tithe and our generosity in there. Okay, number three, now uh, we're going to save some for the future. Okay, and that's where Lindsay and I's personalities get a little different. She's like, yep, we're going to save some for the future. Let's go dig a hole and put some money in it. Okay, right? My, my personality is a little different, so you work through that. And then number four, we're going to enjoy it, and, and we're going to figure out what enjoyment looks like, right? And then um, uh, this started going well for us, and so we got to a fifth category, which is even more fun. We call that one stupid fun right? And that's like when you take care of the first four, you're like, okay, now we're going to have stupid fun. Okay, and so if you ever look and I'm wearing like some, uh, some, some Jordans, okay, like tennis shoes, okay, that came out of the stupid fun, right? Because, because when, you, when you do begin to, uh, to walk it out in God's way, then you, uh, the, the principle stands true. Your, your barns are full. And so you go, okay, let's enjoy what God has given us. But we're partnered together in it. There might be a whole bunch of things going on in your marriage. Wouldn't it be crazy if you just sat down together as a couple and worked through a, a budget together as a family if some of those other issues began to disappear? I think that's possible. And I would encourage you to do it. And so we're going to send out an email today, and it's going to have the Ramsey Plus account on it. And then uh, it's going to have a, a link to our online giving platform because I, I want you to know when you operate in God's way, it's always best. It's always best. It's always best. Clear truth. Confused world, there's some clarity. Walk in God's best for you and your spouse. By the way, if you're single, what do you do? Learn how to do all four of those things in the proper order. When you sit down with that person and you get to that point in the relationship where you talk about money, you can tell them, I've learned how to control myself. I've learned how to give generously. And uh, I know how to save. And I've got some money set aside. Let's go do this thing and be awesome partners. That's a cool thing when you step into a relationship like that. Now, you can't get it overnight. It's going to take diligence. It's going to take practice, but you can get there. Let's move on to the next one, sex. Scripture says a lot about it in the context of marriage. Paul thought it was so important. He wrote a, a couple chapters about it uh, in 1 Corinthians. And uh, as we talk about this, I'm just going to tell you what the Scriptures say, okay? And uh, because this one is important. Let me start off by this premise. Before you get married... Satan will do everything he can to get you to have sex. After you get married, Satan will do everything he can to get you not to have sex. It's true. That's the principle, right? Because why? Because why? Well, let me read the confused distortion. Here's the confused distortion. Sex is primarily about me and the pleasure I receive. Here's the clear truth. Sex is primarily about serving my spouse and rekindling our intimacy. Listen. I'm going to create a metaphor here, and I'm not being sacrilegious. I, I, I believe this. Sex is the communion of marriage. It is. And we take communion, and we are instructed to take communion. Why? 
Because what it does is it, it, it's, it's, it's an outward sign or seal, right, of the relationship that we have with Christ. There's also something spiritual about it, transformative almost about it, that like rekindles the intimacy. And so uh, as we see communion doing that in our relationship with Christ, sex is to do that in the context of marriage. And um, Christ was pretty clear or, or Paul was pretty clear in uh, 1 Corinthians about the truth of it. Let me just read this and then just see, see how, like, uh, against this is uh, what the world teaches us. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, I'm in 1 Corinthians. By the way, that means that the church in Corinth wrote Paul a letter, and they're like, hey, Paul, can you clarify something for us? Is it good for people to have sex? Like, they actually wrote that to the apostle Paul. And so Paul writes back, he goes, okay, remember what you wrote about? And they're like, yeah, we've been kind of waiting. Okay. It is good for a man not to have sexual, oh, I'm sorry. It, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, okay? So they, he wrote that out, and Paul's like, okay, hold on. Let me answer, let me clear up the confusion. They were confused, and they needed clear truth. And so Paul writes back, clear truth. He says this, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, there is an element, yes, that prior to marriage, we need self-control. We need the Holy Spirit to change us. We need to desire purity and intimacy. But God says, listen, I created a really good strategy if you're attempted by sexuality. Get married. He says, that's the best strategy. Get married. Uh, and then Proverbs says, you know, and then enjoy the, the wife of your youth, right? Like, like this idea, like get married and, and engage sexually. That's the best way to combat it. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay, now, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, what a word, and likewise, the wife to her husband. Okay, this next line, I wanted to just post this on my Facebook and watch the world explode. <laughs> I might do it tomorrow, okay? Some of you, I know, you get popcorn and you just watch my Facebook post. Y'all, this is great. Okay. Look at this line. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Imagine standing in front of a room of modern women. <laughs> By the way, if your non-Christian friend disagrees with my last sermon as much as you do, you might need to check yourself. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Let me just be very clear what this is saying. By the way, it is going to go on, and the next line is going to say this. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And I know there's a lot of men out there. You feel like a piece of me, and I'm sorry, okay? <laughs> I am. Persevere for godliness, okay? <laughs> Let me pull out some truths here. And listen, I'm, I'm willing to have this conversation about sex and money because I know how many of your marriages it's destroying. And I'm being a good pastor if I don't bring it up. Because we can pretend, we can pretend like everything's fine, but we know what divorce rates are. We know what, even if you're not getting divorced, 
it feels like you're living alone. I hate that for you. Let's solve some problems God's way. Neither the man nor the woman have authority over their own bodies. You belong to the other. Withholding from sex is sinful. Sex is not a weapon to get what you want. Let me talk about a couple of confused distortions. My wife should let me have sex with her whenever I want. Clear truth. If sex is only about what you want, you're already starting at the wrong place. Guys. Now, the right way to do it is to serve your wife in such a way that she desires to be with you. Other way on this, men or women, confused distortion. If my husband were not such a blank, I'd have sex more. Clear truth. Serve your husband with sex and, lit and watch how it transforms both him and you. Now, the scriptures go on to say, Paul's, he's being clear here. He goes on, he says this. He says, do not deprive one another, just in case I'm not being clear. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps, he's like, I'll give you one caveat, except perhaps by agreement. And both sides of this, if agreement just means you get to say what is right, that's not agreement. Except by agreement for a limited time. So I looked up the Greek for limited time. It means three hours. <laughs> That's a joke, okay? It's a joke. It means a day, okay? <laughs> go on. Go on in the text. Why? He goes, Paul goes, and, and listen, listen. If our foundation for marriage is wrong, this verse will seem archaic and messed up. But if our foundation for marriage is right, then this verse makes perfect sense. He says, unless what? He says, unless you want to get together to pray. Let me say it another way. Unless you want to get together to pursue Christ together. And then it's okay. Then it's okay. And so what we're seeing in here, because, and it all has to line up. If you are in the marriage relationship and you're in it for the right reason, which is to partner together for the gospel, then he says, okay, so now you're partnering together in the gospel and you're in the beauty of the covenant relationship, right? And in the beauty of the covenant relationship, the rules of engagement are mutually submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Okay, but then there are gonna be certain times where wife, yes, submit to your husband. Husband, lay your... Uh, your life down for your wife. Okay, become into complete and full oneness and then leverage everything you have. Leverage uh, your money because you're working together at it. Uh, leverage sexuality because there's a temptation to sin and you don't want to bring sin into your relationship. So serve each other in that way. Uh, reunite together and then get back out there and go build the kingdom of God together. See, the beauty of this is that God is laying out this strategy, and he's like, this is going to be so much different than how the world handles these things. And so uh, God's like, I've created a superpower, and it is men and women in biblical marriages partnering for the gospel together. That's what's exciting about this. But we get so distorted by what the world has taught us about marriage that the, the superpower diminishes. Well, what if instead 
Redemption Church? What if instead, husbands and wives, what if instead we said, we're going to do it God's way, and as we step into God's way, it's going to be like a power, there's going to be like this force of partners running around together. That's a beautiful picture of marriage. And then God said, later you're going to have kids into it, you're going to train them up, and then and that is going to sweep through society. It's a beautiful picture. At the end here, God ends it. Uh, in Genesis 2, I'm going to go back over to, to Genesis 2 now, okay? And in Genesis chapter 2, we get the very last part of it, and here's the beauty of it. He says this, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Listen, this is way more about sex than, than sex. What is it? It's about this idea in marriage, that we can be fully known and fully loved. Fully known and fully loved. Now, let me tell you, the only way this can happen, the only way, because this is what the outcome of it is, is this mutually sanctifying relationship where we are both fully known and fully loved, and there's only three, uh, three things that have to happen in order for that to happen. Number one, you can't let intimacy be stopped. And the, the, the danger in marriage is you get to a point where you say, okay, I'm done. I'm done developing intimacy with this person. It's been this amount of years, and we're mad at each other. We're angry at each other, and so we're not going to do, we're not going to pursue intimacy anymore. We're going to stop. No, be fully known and fully loved. What does the world teach us? The more you get to know somebody, the more they annoy you. What is Scripture teaching us? The more you get to know somebody, the more you love them. It's beautiful. Second thing that has to happen is humility. In a Christian marriage, there is no he is always right or she is always right. If that exists in your marriage, it's unbiblical and it's ungodly. And it's probably the big problem, honestly. There's, how do I know this? Because people are sinful. You're sinful. You're sinful. You're wrong at some point. Number three, you have to learn how to forgive each other. You have to learn how to forgive each other. If you're single and you want to know how to be a good spouse someday, learn the power of forgiveness. You think, oh, I can't forgive that person, but someday I'll be able to forgive my spouse. You think your spouse isn't going to hurt you just as bad as that person? Learn how to forgive now. Men and women, we have to learn how, husbands and wives, we have to learn how to forgive each other. That's the only way we can ever walk into being fully known and fully loved. Let me end here. Let me end here. All of this is a picture of the gospel, a beautiful picture of the gospel. See, in marriage, man was alone. And God saw and looked and said, there's a problem. I need to solve the problem. I'm going to solve the problem by sending someone And so God sent woman. And then he said, there has to be a departure and the forming of a new covenant. And then when you're in that, you can uh, be both uh, fully known and fully loved. And that is the beauty of marriage, but it's a beauty that points us to the gospel. What's the beauty of the gospel? That in the gospel, we had a bigger problem than just being alone. We had a problem of being isolated from God. And so God said, I need to send a helper because humanity, man and woman, they are now isolated from God, not because of loneliness, but because of sin. And so God sent his son Jesus down to earth who departed, excuse me, departed the beauty of heaven to come down to earth in order to rescue us out of our different loneliness. Not the loneliness of trying to partner in the world, but our loneliness isolated from God. And so Jesus comes down and he departs and he deeply sacrifices by going to the cross. Why? So that we could enter into a new type of covenant relationship. And the beauty of the relationship, just like marriage, is that we're not going to be defined by our performance in that marriage. We're going to be defined by Christ's performance on the cross. And it's a relationship that'll do what? That in it, in Christ, we can be both fully known and fully loved. Despite our flaws, our sins, our failures, and all of that kind of stuff, that Christ forgives us and we can be fully known and fully loved. And that's the beauty of the gospel.
And marriage points us to it. My friends, this morning, my sincere hope and aim as your pastor is that you will look and see what Scripture has to say. Because I believe, I've seen it in my own life and in others, that if we return to the basics and the foundation of what God had made for marriage, that no marriage is too far gone here. That the Holy Spirit can break in and you can start to walk in the beauty and the freedom, humility and forgiveness on both sides. Let God do it in you. Walk in the joy of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word created for us, written to us to teach us how to best live. And Lord, I know, because I know, because I know, that right in here are marriages where they're operating as one instead of, or they're operating as individuals instead of as, as a unit, where they've lost sight of the mission, where they're using things as weapons against each other. And Father, through your Holy Spirit, would you heal, restore, and set a fire in the right ways every marriage in this room and raise up partners together for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.